Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Hey everyone, welcome back. This week, we're diving back into the tales of the early American Republic, this time to cover the often-praised Bill of Rights. Touted frequently as an example for all other democracies to follow, the Bill of Rights was the first ten amendments to the United States Constitution. As you remember from my episode about the ratifying conventions, the demand for a Bill of Rights was a strong rallying cry for the Anti-Federalists, who were opposed to the Constitution's ratification. So, what are the Bill of Rights? How'd they come about? And how have they influenced our history? Grab your cup of coffee, peeps. Let's do this. While we study and revere the Bill of Rights today as an example of political ingenuity, the truth of the matter is that our first ten amendments were not all that special or new. The concept of individual rights being written into government documents can be traced all the way back to the Magna Carta in 1215 and the English Bill of Rights in 1689. In both examples, the government made an agreement with the people. In exchange for their ability to exert power and pass laws, the government guaranteed protections of certain rights of the individual. The Magna Carta provided for protection of church rights and later, the English Bill of Rights would guarantee freedoms and protections such as taxation with representation. Some states also replicated this model of granting individual rights as they developed their state constitutions. In Virginia, for example, George Mason wrote the first Declaration of Rights in 1776, and as he was writing the draft of the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson borrowed heavily from Mason's text. So when the delegates met in 1787 to draft the new government, the idea of individual rights and liberties was already a well-known theory and in many states already codified into their state government. And when George Mason introduced the topic of drafting a Bill of Rights on September 12, 1787, just five days prior to their adjournment and some three months into the process, it was seen as a ruse to further delay the convention and prevent the Constitution from being completed. Remember, the delegates had been locked away since May, debating and working on creating their version of a more perfect union. They were tired and ready to go home. The man considered the father of the Constitution, James Madison, also felt strongly that capturing each individual right was not the answer to the problem. Madison believed that to protect individual rights, you had to create a government that was inherently non-tyrannical. And in his mind, the Constitution accomplished this with the various checks and balances and separation of powers amongst the three branches of government. And so the proposal to debate a Bill of Rights was defeated and the Constitutional Convention adjourned, headed out to the states for ratification. But it was that failure to consider an individual Bill of Rights that led to that rallying cry for the Anti-Federalists against ratification. It was a unifying political strategy. Who could honestly argue against providing a list of individual freedoms? 
Alexander Hamilton tried his best in Federalist 84 to argue that a Bill of Rights wasn't needed in order for individuals to enjoy personal liberty. Hamilton pointed out the irony that the largest state squawking about a Bill of Rights, New York, didn't actually have a series of rights vested in their own state constitution, and that both individual liberties and the power of government worked in harmony. One of the key factors of Hamilton's argument was that unlike England, the United States Constitution was meant to be a government of, by, and for the people. They were not subjects to a king. They were vested with full power and authority. Writing, quote, It is evident, therefore, that according to their primitive signification, they have no application to constitutions professedly founded upon the power of the people and executed by their immediate representatives and servants. Here, in strictness, the people surrender nothing, and as they retain everything, they have no need of particular reservations. End quote. But ultimately, the Federalists relented and promised to take on the issue of drafting a federal Bill of Rights if the states agreed to ratify. In their minds, this was an easy compromise to make. They were, after all, getting their strong centralized government and getting rid of the Articles of Confederation. Of all the things that could have derailed the ratification, agreeing to debate a series of rights was the easiest issue to cave on. Only North Carolina made the Bill of Rights a condition to ratify the Constitution, delaying their ratification until 1789. So once the Federalists got what they wanted and the Constitution was ratified, what made them follow through on their end of the deal to take up the debate on a Bill of Rights? As it stood, they had a lot of stuff to do to get the federal government up and running. Filling federal roles, setting up the judiciary, and so on. It is easy to understand why they would have shelved the idea of a Bill of Rights for some point in the future, especially considering how many of them felt the Bill of Rights was unnecessary. Political pressure was the key to movement, for one. Almost immediately after ratification, there was talk of the states calling for a second convention, which would almost guarantee a repeal of the Constitution. Federalists had worked very hard and did not want to lose their government before they had a chance to enjoy it. Ultimately, Father James Madison would be one of the loudest voices in demanding a debate on a Bill of Rights, doing a complete 180 on the issue. Madison, who had just been elected to Congress by Virginia residents, heard loud and clear that a Bill of Rights was non-negotiable and that should be the first subject proposed at the new Congress. Madison promises voters that should they elect him, he would ensure a Bill of Rights would be considered. So when he was elected, he argued the Constitution got ratified in part by making a promise to the people who were apprehensive that Congress would incorporate a Bill of Rights. If they failed to make good on their promise, he argued, they would lose the trust of the people. Fulfilling his campaign promise, Madison brought 17 amendments to the floor for consideration into a Bill of Rights. Twelve made it out of Congress, and ten were ratified to the Constitution. And before I dive into the first ten amendments, I think it is important to emphasize here that although they're viewed as fundamental rights to every American citizen today, that isn't how they started, nor was that the intent. Remember, the Constitution was all about the federal government and federal power. So when they originally wrote the Bill of Rights, it was merely a list of what the federal government couldn't do to a citizen. There was nothing prohibiting the states from making their own laws that contradicted the Bill of Rights. And you can see it with the language of the First Amendment, 
quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances, end quote. You'll notice it doesn't say the states shall make no law. States were perfectly within their authority to make a state religion, should they choose to do so. What the First Amendment guaranteed was that there would be no national religion. However, in many states throughout the Union, there were state-supported or sanctioned religions and constitutions that required state officeholders to take an oath to follow the religion of the state. The Second Amendment, perhaps the most contentious amendment in American political discourse, reads as follows, quote, A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, end quote. And while many argue that the Second Amendment was written to protect an individual's right to bear arms, that was not the original interpretation. Many scholars point to the preamble language, which specifies the federal government's need to call a militia as evidence that the Second Amendment was not meant to be all-encompassing. It was only recently held that the Second Amendment should be viewed as a blanket protection for individuals to own weapons. There have been three major court cases reviewing the language and limitations of the Second Amendment. The first Supreme Court case, Presser v. Illinois in 1886, addressed the definition of militias. Presser, a man who led a parade of 400 armed individuals down the streets of Chicago, believed the text of the Second Amendment allowed him to gather as a militia and that Chicago was violating his rights by requiring permission to march down the street. The Supreme Court disagreed. The court held that, quote, The sections under consideration, which forbid bodies of men to associate together as military organizations, or to drill or parade with arms in cities and towns unless authorized by law, do not infringe the right of the people to keep and bear arms, end quote. The ruling also stated states could not disarm citizens as this would hinder the federal government's ability to raise a militia. In 1939, in United States v. Miller, the Supreme Court decided that the right to bear arms was limited. It did not protect a citizen's right to keep any weapon they wanted, Rather, citizens should only be allowed to maintain weapons that would be common in military defense. At issue specifically was the transportation of and failure to register a sawed-off shotgun, a weapon of choice for criminals at the time. It wasn't until 2008 in District of Columbia v. Heller that the Supreme Court held that the Second Amendment meant the right to possess weapons was not solely held for military use, as the preamble language specifies, but could be also used for personal use, such as personal protection. The Third Amendment protects individuals from having to quarter soldiers without permission of the homeowner. The Fourth Amendment guarantees protections against search and seizure without a warrant or probable cause. The Fifth Amendment provides for the protection against self-incrimination and provides for double jeopardy protections, meaning if you're acquitted of a crime once, you cannot be tried again. The Fifth Amendment also protects the right to due process of law and protects private property from public use. The Sixth Amendment guarantees an individual's right to a speedy trial and guarantees the right to a lawyer and to know what you are being charged with ahead of trial. And while we use the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments quite a bit today, these amendments went largely unused or exercised in their immediate ratification. Again, 
These were federal protections. It wasn't until later that these protections were interpreted to apply to the states as well. The Seventh Amendment guarantees the right to a jury in a civil trial. The Eighth Amendment protects against cruel and unusual punishment and excessive fines or bail. The Ninth Amendment basically says that the rights listed in the Constitution should not be used to deny other rights not listed in the Constitution. And finally, the Tenth Amendment states that powers not listed in the Constitution and not prohibited by the states are reserved for the states or people, otherwise commonly referred to as states' rights. Approved by a joint session of Congress on September 25, 1789, the Bill of Rights was sent to the states for ratification three days later on September 28th. The required number of states ratified 10 out of the 12 amendments and went into effect on December 15, 1791. So what were the two amendments that failed to gain traction in the states? Well, one amendment outlined the formula for how the House of Representatives would be calculated, and the other outlined when Congress could change their pay. While the First Amendment never got ratified, the Congressional Pay Amendment actually did get inserted later, much later, in 1992 as the 27th Amendment. If you're wondering when and how these Bill of Rights went from being applicable only on a federal level to a state level, don't fret, I got you covered. The 14th Amendment, passed in 1868 in the aftermath of the Civil War, opened the door for the federal government to dictate what states could and could not do as it specified that no states shall make laws that infringe on the rights of its citizens. Towards the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the Supreme Court started exerting more influence and power and used the 14th Amendment as its basis. But it is a pair of court cases in 1897 and 1925 that are credited with creating the Incorporation Doctrine. In layman's terms, the Incorporation Doctrine is the Supreme Court finding portions of the Bill of Rights are applicable to the states. While not all of the Bill of Rights have been incorporated, many of the superstars, such as freedom of speech and the right to a trial by jury, are now considered required inclusions on the state level. Prior to the Incorporation Doctrine, there was not a lot of discussion and debate about what was considered constitutional at the judicial level. For example, when determining whether a national bank was constitutional, it was George Washington and not the Supreme Court who made that judgment call. And with that, I will go ahead and wrap up this episode. Don't forget that each Wednesday this month, I'm dropping bonus episodes highlighting women in history. Be sure to check out civicsandcoffee.com for show notes, source material, and ways you can support the pod. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. Thank you.